When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year, the podcast. And when we say we're your friends, we really are your friends. <laughs> In fact, we're going to come round to yours and just stay for a barbie. Yes. Uh, nice bottle of wine. Get it open for us. That'd be lovely. What would be your choice? On uh, I actually had a barbie at the weekend. No, not so. a barbie. A bottle of wine. A bottle of wine. Oh, I mean, really anything red. Okay. Well, anything red. I'm not going to go along with that. Okay, well, when I, I lived... I think a rosé would be nice. Okay, well, that's very nice and fabulous. Uh, when I lived in um, Spain, we used to buy our wine by the Tetra Pak. Which How is big is a Tetra Pak? Like, you know, UHT milk. Oh, so right, yes. it would be bought... There was, there was a brand, I don't know whether it's in England now, uh, called Don Simon. And... Um... <laughs> Don Simon. And it was very... Well, it was red wine and it had alcohol in it. And, you know, you're in your 20s, so... Everything's Boom. pretty basic. Yes. This is the era of Matthias Rosé, I think. <laughs> in that circular bottle. Oh, yeah. If it's chilled, it's doing fine. Are they still around, Matthias Rosé? So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's well, say nice things about them. Let's do that. Anyway, we're only talking like this because it's hot outside. Yeah. Um, email from Simon Ellis. You can email us, by the way. It's very nice to hear from you. Uh, Simon Ellis says, Dear Bookworms, you recently featured Cecilia Ahern on the pod for her book, A Thousand Different Ways. Yes. I saw a review of this elsewhere, so reserved it at my library. Shout out to all public libraries everywhere, but particularly Buckingham Library, a great space well used by local community groups. Excellent. What a book. I read the novel in two sittings. Cecilia's treatment of folk with, in quotes, similar conditions, particularly Alice's friend Gospel, the footballer with the ticks ah, yeah. is wonderful. The family yeah. politics are so well drawn and how she meets her husband, that's terrific. I have just listened to your pod interview with Cecilia today after finishing the book this morning. It's lovely to hear the chat while the book is so fresh. Five stars in capital letters. Please keep on doing what you're doing, uh, says Simon. And the uh, the episode with Cecilia Hearn is available, obviously, to listen to from wherever you've got this podcast. Yes, um, uh, an email from June Richardson. Hello again, lads. I've listened to all of your Books of the Year podcasts. Wow. Uh, yeah, the featured book is added to my online wish list, which is full of books recommended by yourselves, friends and family. My bookshelf has a couple of hundred books ready to read, and I'm pleased to say your recommended ones are filtering through. But the one that stood out is Ben Rhodes's The World As It Is. Wow. That is way back. We, that was <laughs> practically when we were starting that. Uh, reading this sent me through so many unexpected emotional ups and downs, from the shocking facts about America's bombing of Hiroshima to the sad but uplifting Amazing Grace eulogy by Obama, which I had to look up on YouTube. From memory, that is when Ben Rose obviously was writing speeches for Obama, but this was the time when um, the president just went off script and decided 
I'm just going to sing Amazing Grace. Oh, it's, that's right. It's, yeah. yeah, it was after a um, school shooting. That feels like in another era. Absolutely. Yeah, yes, it is. Um, uh, June continues, you asked Ben about his next writing project, which is now available and entitled After the Fall and is in my ever-growing book wish list, which also cl- includes at least 75 more of your recommended right. books to enjoy from your fab podcast. Keep up the great work. June Richardson from a green and sunny West York. Well, thank you, June. I mean, that's very nice. Most people's book wish list is like three or four which yeah. they might get to by the end of the year yeah if you've got 75 that's the rest of your life goodness me basically and if you just got around to the ben Rhodes, you're <laughs> you're so in the past there is some catching up to be done there's an awful lot of catching up jane towers simon and matt firstly thanks for a brilliant podcast i've read many of the books uh, that have been featured on your program but the absolute best has to be damascus station oh yes so i yes. finished this morning ignoring the ironing cleaning and various other chores that required my attention what a brilliant spy novel it is. One of the best I've read, if not the best. What I would love to know is how long you give a book before deciding it's not for you. I do about 40 pages, and if it hasn't gripped me, I'll move on to the next in my ever-growing pile. Thanks again for the recommendations, because we ask this sometimes of, yeah. our, of our authors. And if it's one of the books we're reviewing, then obviously we just keep going. Yeah. Regardless. But if I'm reading for pleasure... Forty mm, is not bad, actually. Forty is a forty, fifty pages is pretty good. Yeah, I, I've noticed that I now distinguish between fiction and non-fiction as to how long I give it. If it's non-fiction and it hasn't got me, because normally with non-fiction you already know the premise. So if it hasn't got me within a couple of pages, I'm out for a Two non-fiction. Pages. Okay, uh, but with fiction, I'll, I'll tend to give it longer. So uh, yeah, three 40, pages. Three pages. Yeah, forty pages tends to be about. So I think Jane, you're you know yeah. that seems about right. Yeah. Uh, books of the year at yahoo.com. That's how you get in touch. You can follow us on Twitter at Books of the Year. Also on Instagram at Pick Any Page. Right. Let's talk to Kate Moss. It's always a moment. It's also an event when there's a new Kate Moss book out. Hello, Kate. How are you? Hello, Simon. Lovely to be back. And it's beautiful sunshine outside. And I have to say three cheers for the air conditioning inside <laughs> the studio. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's nicer in here in this little cube. Isn't it fantastic? <laughs> I just want to mention Carcassonne because, not only because you know more about Carcassonne than anyone in Carcassonne uh, <laughs> does but the 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 last time i was as hot as i was today was in carcassonne oh, was <laughs> and we're, I was, we're only there for a few days and it's it is an extraordinary place yeah. but the heat was oh astonishing the heat is astonishing and in the winter when the tramontana is coming down and it's freezing cold air from the mountains it's also bitterly cold so it has the two extremes even though it's you know tucked away in the southwest corner of france there was a, there was an open air concert uh, and Mark Knopfler was playing, and wow. and I yeah, knew, yeah. and they get great people there. Yeah, and yeah. I knew one of the, I knew one of the band members who got me in. <laughs> as but we sat there, and it was one of those nights where it's just, it was as hot as it was in the day. You see, and everybody, you see, you should, I, you, if you, I'd known you were there, you could have stayed in our little house at the bottom of the walls. You could have been lying in bed with the windows open, and you would have heard every single oh, note. Oh, really? Because okay. that's how close we are to. Yeah, that. Elton wow. John had been there like the week before. It yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 they get everybody. And David Bowie, we were supposed to see. David Bowie then and that was when he had his heart attack Um, and it goes right back to where Sarah Bernhardt used to appear there everybody all the leading singers of Europe and actors of Europe went to Carcassonne to this you know this medieval city you know in the heart of Languedoc. I have to say your your memories of Carcassonne are obviously far better than mine (laughs) I spent spent Uh, three hours in Carcassonne when I was interrailing I'd arranged to meet a girl in Carcassonne Uh. 
and this was in the times before mobile phones. So we'd arranged to meet, and she didn't turn up. Oh. And I spent three hours sitting on the floor in the oh, railway station yeah, car and then yeah. left. No, well, uh, you can't yes. blame Carcassonne for that. No, not no. not really the town's fault. Have really. you found a better girl since? I've, yeah, yes, well, so that's, we okay. that's okay. That's <laughs> okay. Right, okay, it's an interesting... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting detour. It's all so, about the books. <laughs> all of which is, is relevant. So Kate's new book is The Ghost Ship. Matt, so we've we've got slightly different covers, but describe... From from what you can see, okay, the new. So the new. Well, there's one word to describe it, which is sumptuous. Where we're looking at blues and golds, and it. I mean, it just shouts out quality. This really, the, certainly the hardback. You've got a um, ship right at the top, as you'd expect in in this uh, particular period. So we've got sails billowing, and then waves of gold and blue beneath it. And then Kate Moss, uh, in picked out in, in big block white letters, and the ghost ship. And in the very small copy of the uh, of the cover that I've got, I can't read what nice things there are written on the front cover other than the name and the title, but I'm sure they're <laughs> all fabulous. Rebellion Takes to the High Seas. Oh, of course it yes. does, because that's on the front cover of the yeah, trade yeah. copy as well. Well done. <laughs> and we haven't got the uh, the super luxury uh, edition, which people will, will see in the shops, which has got, just describe the pages. Yes, and that is, that's for the independent bookshops, specifically for them, and it's got some extra material in, but it's got the most beautiful, Then I'm afraid they're called spreadges, which is a terrible phrase for how beautiful they look, which is sprayed edges. And they're a deep, deep blue. And the same ship is just sailing down the, um, the, you know, the pages. And it's beautiful. And then gorgeous end papers, a 17th century map of La Rochelle, which is one of the key places in, in the Atlantic coast of France. Sprayed edges isn't the kind of... It's not a double word that you think needs to be short. No, and spreadges is just an ugly word, isn't it? Mm, I mean, it's... Same. yeah. It, so they're beautiful and it doesn't do it justice. So the Carcassonne chat is relevant only in as much as uh, we know that, that you are an expert in the you know, 16th, 17th, 18th, 18th centuries. But this is the third in a series. Just tell us where we are for the ghost ship. Who do we need to be aware of? Well... It is the third in a series of four books of the Joubert Family Chronicles. And the whole series of books is uh, 300 years of history, a family feud between two families, uh, Romeo and Juliet story, really, Catholics versus Protestants, uh, the Huguenot diaspora from France out all over the world. And the series starts in 1562 on the eve of the wars of religion that will destroy France. And it will finish in Franchuk um, in South Africa. Franchuk means in Afrikaans the French corner. Um, in 1862, and it will be the descendants of that original family. So there's been two books before, Burning Chambers and The City of Tears, but with The Ghost Ship, because it's the one set on the sea, it's a pirate novel, I have deliberately written it so it does stand alone as well. So if you've read the previous two, you'll be following characters, but because it actually jumps a little bit further forward in time, if you've not read the previous two, you could read this novel and everything you need is there. And that was important because pirate novels are a very particular type of genre, and I've always wanted to write a pirate novel, and suddenly sailed into view. Let's see how many terrible sailing hey, hey. we can get in. Well done. Uh, I still think, you know, despite all, all your work, the religious civil wars in France and the Huguenots, uh, a lot of people don't know uh, enough um, about them. Just give, you know, in a couple of lines, in a paragraph, who were the Huguenots? And given that they then disappeared around the four to the four corners of the earth, what did they? What did they bring? You say in the, you know, in the introduction, they have sort of blessed every country that they visited. Yes, it's. Um... 
It's the period of the Reformation all the way through Europe. So, of course, many countries, not least of all England, as it then was, is being riven uh, by religious difference. Of course, in the end, it's always about power. It's not ever about faith. And so it was in France that there had been tension between the Huguenots, which is simply uh, the name for the French Protestants. You know, that if we just think of them as the French Protestants and the Catholics. But they were very influential. And they had a lot of people in very high places, if you like. And on the eve of the wars of religion, one of the most important of the uh, Huguenots, uh, Huguenot leaders, had a great deal of influence over the young king. And the young king was very unstable and he was very fragile and he uh, did what his mum told him, his mum being Catherine de' Medici. And every single one of her sons, one by one, was dying off in one way or another. And that was in a way what triggered it, a three-way battle. So two powerful Catholic factions and one powerful Huguenot faction. And then most people might know it started in 1562, 1572, August, Paris, the most famous notorious uh, engagement of the wars of religion in France, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. When a decision was taken, and in the second book I give a suggestion of who I think gave the order, um, but nobody really knows, uh, to quite actively massacre every single leading Huguenot who was in Paris for the wedding that was supposed to bring priests to France, which was between the Catholic uh, Marguerite de Valois, daughter of Catherine de Medici, and Henri de Navarre, who was the great French king. And he had been a Huguenot, and he converted to be a Catholic in order to be the king of France, because the whole of the rest of the dynasty, the Valois dynasty, had died. So it's the beginning of the Bourbon kings. Because there was a massacre. There was another terrible, terrible time of war and destruction. And Huguenots went from being 10%, very powerful 10% of the population, to almost not existing. And it was a religious persecution which said, if you're a Huguenot, you can't worship, you can't have a job. You know, we have seen this in every country in every period of history. In the ghost ship, we start with the great Henry of Navarre and a catastrophic event for France, which happens. And it's not really a spoiler, I don't think, to say that he is assassinated in 1610. It is everything that I write in terms of history is about a moment at which history turns, could have gone one way or the other. If Henry of Navarre had not died, the whole history of France would have been different. But because he did the country blew up again and it would therefore be at civil war with itself for many, 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 many generations and it in the end will lead okay. to the revolution. So that's the background. Introduces then, so let's bring it right down to the personalities and at the heart of this story, Louise Redon-Joubert. Uh, tell us about her and also maybe what happened to her parents. Louise is... Oh, I loved writing this character. Uh, she is a powerful young woman she has been brought up partly in Amsterdam and now lives in the great Huguenot capital, essentially, of France called La Rochelle, which was a Huguenot stronghold, almost like a free state um, at this period of history, 16, 1610 and 1620. And she is the granddaughter of the characters that we met in the very first book and followed their story in the second book. Uh, so Minou Joubert and her husband, Pete Redon. And Louise is... She's not frustrated quite, but she she's a strong, independent woman in a man's world. 
and she is confined by the roles that are assigned to her, but she is rich, which means that she can get away with doing things. And so when we meet her, she is learning about her background and what's happened to her parents. Both her parents are dead. We don't really know how it happened. We know that it was a tragedy and there was a lot of secrecy about it because this is a novel about revenge, actually, and secrets and the... Um, corrosive power of secrets that people carry inside them. So Louise is waiting to know if she is going to inherit the money from her, her father, who she's, she doesn't know, she's never met, we think. And so that's how we first meet her in Paris on the eve of the assassination of the king. And then we follow her story, the woman that she becomes, the consequences of acts that she has done. And in the end, the reason that she has to flee France and... She is somebody who's grown up by the sea. She has a family connection with a shipping fleet and she would like to be the captain of a ship, but she's a woman and women are not allowed on ships and women are considered bad luck on ships. So what's she going to do? So Simon mentioned there are two uh, characters at the centre of this story and you've mentioned you've mentioned Louise and, and I, I think that's a great uh, way you've described it as her sort of special power of being able to to have any agency in a man's world is that she has money. I want to talk about the other uh, female character um, who is Gilles Barenton and anyone who knows uh, names will know Gilles is, a, is normally a, a boy's name. Talk to us about her, why she decides to effectively present as a man. Well we've got to be careful with no spoilers mm. <laughs> with here. Um, Gilles we meet as a child, in La Rochelle. And the love story at the heart of this book, because although it's a, a thriller in a way, a mystery story of revenge and secrets, at the same time, it's a love story at the heart. And it is inspired by two real-life pirates, two female pirates oh. called Bonnie and Reed. And uh, I can tell you their story a little bit later if you want to hear their story. Um, but they are notorious and inspirational and brilliant. And I first came across them in the Ladybird Book of Pirates. <laughs> and I didn't really register it. And then, you know, what's really extraordinary, I've discovered that there's an Adam Ant song with Bonnie and Reed in it. I loved Adam Ant in the 80s. Wow. And I had never kind of clocked it that it was, oh my God, you know, it's this actual song. Anyway, that's by the by. So Gilles is, we meet when they are 10 years old, um, horrible, violent home life, a uh, very, very tragic thing has just happened um, and they are completely bereft. And the mother starts to dress her child in boys' clothes in order for him to get an inheritance because in almost every period of history, boys get the stuff and the girls don't. And then money goes out of the family and all this kind of thing. And, of course, it makes sense, doesn't it, that discovers that if you're dressed as a boy, people don't try and pinch your cheek or put, you know, put their hand up your skirt and, they, and you're allowed to go out and you're not always being told you can't do this and you can't do that. And so decides to continue to live, to pass as a boy and then pass as a man. And they have, are very, very different, Louise and Gilles, but they are both outsiders. They have both chosen to put themselves outside. Gilles, no choice of his own. Louise, because her money protects her. Neither of them behave like women in the world are supposed to behave. And so, of course, at a certain moment, when yet more blood is exploding all over the page, 
they come into contact with each other. And that's the beginning of the Thelma and Louise caper, really. Did you know that that was always going to be the heart of this book? Because you said this is, it's although it's the third of four, it's a standalone book. And did you think that at the heart, this is going to be a love story? Yes, it's a mystery. Yes, it's a, you know, um, a thriller, uh, really. But it's, that's the relationship that you wanted to write about. Do you know, no, because it's not really how I write. So the thing is that I do all the research... And I know the type of novel that I want to write. I knew I wanted to write a pirate novel. I've always loved pirate novels. I love novels of the sea. And I've always loved the idea that a pirate ship is a floating republic, that the rules that govern every other part of society don't apply on a pirate ship. There's a completely different, very rigid system. And I knew all sorts of things like there's a, uh, something called metellotage, uh, which was essentially almost always male, civil partnership between male pirates that they would kind of look after each other and they were kind of partnership on board and they might or might not have had a relationship of, you know, exchanges of kisses or anything else. Um, but it Carnal was a, knowledge. Carnal knowledge. <laughs> yeah, um, it was, but it was an accepted thing. It even had a name. So I knew lots of things about pirate ships and the life of pirates that are not to do with Pirates of the Caribbean, Disney and, you know, some of that swashbuckling stuff, you know, that it's, it's much more particular and there's a lot of research. And I knew, therefore, that there were female pirates. So not just Bonnie and Reed, but at this period of time, there has been the great Irish pirate commander, Granier O'Malley, who was a contemporary of Elizabeth I. There's, at this period, an extraordinary woman, Moroccan pirate queen, called Saida El Khuda, and she is also in the waters around Morocco and between the Canary Islands and Saleh, and all the way back to the Lioness of Brittany, so-called Jeanne de Clisson. So I knew that I wanted to tell a female pirate story. I knew the history. I knew that we would start probably with the assassination of the king, and it would be mostly set on board ships, and that we would get at the end of this novel to South Africa, to the Cape of Good Hope, to set up the final story. And I knew that my lead character would be someone from within the Joubert family. And then I sat down and I thought, oh, let's see where this goes. So the first draft I write is all emotion. And it's like, let's just see where this story goes. Mm. And then I think, OK, that works, that doesn't work. That was a stupid idea, but I just let it go. So in the writing of that first draft, I thought, oh, I'm going to be writing a love story. How interesting. And that, so I discovered it as I wrote. OK, which is all very exciting. I mean, people always <laughs> write in very different ways, but, yeah. you know, that, that process, I think, is sort of, it it's almost sounds like alchemy to people who haven't yeah. tried to write a book, you, you know, that you haven't actually worked out what you're going to do. You just some start you know I just start but the real history is my architecture yes so I know it's set against the backdrop of real history and that gives me my shape now uh, in the credits at the end again we're not spoiling anything you, you do <laughs> at least thank, you've read the me you thank, <laughs> to be honest I start there normally <laughs> um Rear Admiral John Lippiot for his encouragement endless patience and expert advice how do you so obviously he knows about life on ship and you're well known, everyone knows that a Kate Moss book is going to be fantastically researched. How on earth do you get on in your head on board a ship? Yeah, from these years and make and make us believe that we are doing it with you. That was the biggest challenge for me because what I'm known for is landscape is my biggest character, usually Carcassonne, but also of course Paris and Amsterdam. And so I really thought, can I make 
the sea, the landscape, the seascape is, you know, can that be at the heart of it? I'm not a sailor. I love walking by the sea. I don't even really like swimming in the sea. Mm -hmm. um, and I've never had that love of, you know, out on the ocean wave thing. It's, it, so that was my challenge. So there were two things. Firstly was, and this is where John Lippiot was so brilliant, that I simply said, John, I'm writing a lady pirate novel. I need some help about ships. And he bought, lent me loads and loads of books, but mostly it was saying things like that actually the craft of ships and how ships work didn't change very much for about 500 years. That essentially the models that they had at the beginning of you know, the 13th, 14th century until metal came in, those ships were essentially the same. So that was a brilliant piece of, okay, that's really interesting. So everybody knows what a ship's like. The second thing is, always for me, my research is in my feet, in my boots. And so I visited every single possible maritime museum that I could get to. Um, I didn't get to uh, Sweden, where the most uh, important ship of this period, the Vasa, is, because this was a famous uh, ship that went down in the harbour of the early 17th century. The king of Sweden had decided he could design a ship himself, and of course he made a mess of it, and it sank in front of everybody on its maiden voyage wow. in the harbour. <laughs> but brilliant, because it was immediately pulled up. So it's almost intact. Uh, I grew up in Chichester, I live in Chichester. Every single school trip was to the Victory in, in Portsmouth yeah. Harbour. John Lippiot was the chair of the Mary Rose Trust. So I went to the Mary Rose. And then I spent a month um, on and off in Amsterdam in the Maritime Museum. I mean, I went other places. <laughs> I didn't just stay in the museum. Um, and climbing around and being in ships. And so then you learn they're so confined that they are very claustrophobic and that people were shorter by and large uh, than in our day. But also you think, how could a woman stay undiscovered on a ship? That seems impossible. Nobody ever takes the clothes off. You know, even when people are, you know, doing the things that everybody has to do every day, you kind of go up to the front of the ship and you just kind of almost have like a flap in your trousers. So all of these things make a difference to it. And so then you start to think of the smell of the ship and the wetness of the ship and what it's like and the different movement of the sea and then John said this beautiful thing to me he said the thing is Kate you have to listen to the song of the ship and that a ship is never silent and that was the moment I thought of course everything creaks it billows it claps it snaps it slips all the time there's never a moment where there's not noise but there's also complete silence in the middle of the ocean and complete darkness, like most of us never see unless you go to Uluru or something. And so I kind of skirted around the fact that I didn't know the sea by learning as much as I could and then shut my eyes and thought, OK, Louise is standing here. This is her ship. She loves this ship. What does she feel? Because, you know, you do this, Simon. It's exactly the same. You know, all we're doing as novelists is what, does the character feel? You can do all the research you like, but if the audience doesn't care, then it doesn't matter, does it? And the thing that's been lovely for me so far, any mistakes are mine, not John Lippiard's, I should say that straight up, but it's been lovely people saying to me, I didn't know you sailed. 
Yeah. I said, ah, Lovely. Done it. You know, Excellent. done it. Well, that's, that's what it feels like. We feel as though we're on board for the whole book. Um, I, I want to explore, dig a little deeper on something you, you said a few minutes ago, Kate, which was about how, when you're on board a pirate ship, the regular rules don't apply. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we've we've already established these are two two women in a in a man's world, but on board the ship, those rules don't apply. And I want to speak specifically about pirates, because I know you will have done research on this as well as to how not just as far as men and women are concerned, but uh, the class system doesn't exist on board a ship on board a pirate ship. Just just um, yeah. expand a bit more. I mean, on that. there is there is a very 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 strict hierarchy on a pirate ship. So it's not that it's, hey, you know, a utopian, <laughs> so, you know, ideal uh, place at all. And it's a brutal place. You know, if you transgress, people, you know, keel hauling, you know, people will be thrown off and literally dragged under the keel of the ship and out and nobody really ever mm. survived that. You know, cat and nine tails, which actually the Dutch version is seven tails. Nobody knows quite why they've all got a different number, which is quite literally flaying with knots down. You know, so very, very brutal when you don't do the right thing. But there is at the same time a weird democracy on a pirate ship that there isn't on a naval ship. Naval ship, you know, everybody's got their particular commands and there's no way if you were just a normal working class man that you would ever be the captain of a ship. A pirate ship, uh, wit in terms of sharp wittedness as opposed to making great jokes, um, bravery, physical strength, courage, who can make you rise up. The ability to lead will make you rise up. So many of the pirate commanders, you know, they weren't from upper class or even what we will come to know as middle class. That wasn't a phrase that really existed in the 17th century. Uh, So people could, in a weird way, um, rise because of their own abilities, which is very democratic and not in any way like the rest of society. They also had the sense that, you know, in a funny sort of way, you know, the musketeers, one for all and all for one, you know, this kind of thing, that the pirate ship, it was absolute obedience to the pirate ship and that's where your obedience lay, your allegiance lay. But if then other ships were taken and there's treasure, then it gets divided out and everybody gets a kind of the same amount of the ship's biscuit and rum and beer. That's the other thing. People completely forget it was not as strong as alcohol is now, but at the same time, people drank from the second they were awake to the second they were asleep and the ship is never asleep. You know, the watches last four hours and four hours and it's always this rotation. So that's the thing about the pirate ship. Now, Louise, she is a woman and women are not allowed on board. They are seen as bad luck. But at the same time, because she knows more about the sea and she is rescuing people who have been very badly treated by normal society, many of them are have been taken prisoner and have been slaves. Um... And she puts together, if you like, this group of outsiders. So they owe allegiance to her. And she is, as one put it, better than any man. You know, the best man I've ever served under, one of them, one of the people say. You mentioned slaves. In the in the broadest sense, the slave trade, where is where is that as we as we go through this story? We are at a very particular moment um in enslavement, in that there have been a lot of uh, Ottoman, as they would have been called, there is a huge republic and a kind of independent republic as part of the Ottoman Empire called Saleh on the North Moroccan coast. And there are many uh, essentially Ottoman Muslim corsairs who have been conducting raids all over England and Italy and France and taking 
Christian slaves to the markets of Agadir and Saleh. And there is also, of course, sadly, uh, European enslavement is really getting going now. And so there is a tit for tat going on. And so there are some of the people that become the pirates on Louise's ship are people who were taken from Cornwall and places like that. Some villages in uh, Cornwall and Devon and were completely denuded of, of, of men and women in this period of history. You know, it was it was it was working both ways. There was also, you know, terrible slavery going around the other way. Of course, the really, really terrible story of enslavement is a, is about to happen because it's going to be involving the Americas. But we're not quite there, not quite there. at this no. moment. So, and it, it, it is a tit for tat. And, you know, one of the things, I love the Canary Islands. I know it's very unfashionable to say so, but I always have and I always will. Yeah. And mm. some, you know, almost all the coastal villages at this, in this period of history in Lanzarote and Fuerteventura, who are closest to the African coast, are deserted because everybody has fled inland in order not to be enslaved. So it's just this weird, again, it's that weird turning point in history. And we forget, we are living in very fractured and divisive times. And I don't know what any of you think about anything, but we know that we don't all agree. We can look at some of the supposed people who are in charge and go, well, we don't agree with anything they say. But in the past, we behave as if everybody agreed with each other. So slavery was just starting to get going. And there's an assumption that everybody thought it was the right thing, but they didn't. There were lots of people, even at the, this, this turning point in the 17th century, who thought that enslaving other people was wrong. But those voices were just drowned out. So that's the other thing that I want to say about this, the idea that, you know, one of the characters in the book, she knows that her business her naval, you know, her ship business will fail because she's not prepared to traffic in people. I want to bounce away from uh, life on board the ship just to talk about one thing which um, which plays a role in the book right at the very beginning, but then later on as well, and that's tarot cards. Um, yeah. Because uh, <laughs> I, I was particularly interested because. It, it does. It does play a role, and I, I, I just wanted to delve into wh whatever research you've done on that because um, it, it, it was very interesting. Thank you. I mean, I didn't expect that to come back in. Um, for those people listening who've read um, any of my other books, they will know that Sepulchre, the second in my longer doc trilogy, is a tarot novel. So um, I did a lot of research there. I learnt how to read cards. I have no gift, but I learnt you know, the patterns and the mm -hmm. different names of, and how you did it and what the cards meant. Um, and I've always loved that idea. It's that that wonderful line from Milton's Paradise Lost, isn't it? You know, sufficient to stand yet free to fall. Mm. And that's kind of how you explain tarot. It's not that this will make it happen. It's not prophecy, but it's an interpretation of what could be. You know, it's terribly vague. Um, but it was very, becoming very popular at this moment. And it's one of those things that distinguishes Huguenots, who are in a weird sort of way, um, practical, pragmatic, incredibly skilled people, what we would call a middle class um, before that term existed. And they go all over the world taking their skills and every single country that Huguenots go to are enriched by their presence. But they were absolutely against any sort of sorcery and magic and the more mystical sides of religion. And they had a great deal of contempt for the mysticism of Catholicism. So a card reader in a place like La Rochelle, which is a Huguenot capital, will both be seen partly as papish, but secondly, just most people will not have seen that because 
it was much more common in Italy and in different parts of France. And so when I was writing the scene when we first meet Gilles, you know what it's like when you're introducing a character. The sure way to kill a character is to go, they're this tall, they look like that, you know, saying they're thinking this. Well, you've got to show characters doing something or interacting with something. You can't just tell us what's in their head. You know, it's, it's boring mm. and it, it's not what the character is about. So suddenly I thought this this abused child, essentially, seeing this incredible character with his cape and these cards and the beauty of the images. And this is a child who has nothing and lives in fear all the time. What that would have done and that idea of a talisman. So um, it was lovely to go back uh, to tarot because I had a great, great time. And in Sepulchre, you know, we, we had painted a whole set for uh, for, for the book itself and um, that was back in 2008 so I've kept it in check I thought <laughs> <laughs> your, your magician who's doing, doing the tarot is very quick to say ah but our fate is in God's hands and you say that you know the crowd murmured their approval yeah, yeah. they're thinking that's very much he, he's he's a smart magician yeah, yeah, exactly. he's thinking I better say that God's in control yeah, right? yeah that's right <laughs> exactly that's right he, you know he, he's you know he, he can read the he can read the crowd he can read the crowd if, if we came to your uh, to your house when you're in the right at the heart, in, in the in the in the middle, you know mm. that that kind of the middle section of the book where everything you you know you're quite keen on some of the stuff you've written, but most of it is still to go. Would we find you swamped by maps and charts and and posters and everything spread out over many tables, or is it all in your head and you're very neat and working in a laptop? You can see where I am in a book from whether you can actually see the floor in my study. Right. Absolutely. So there will be maps, uh, there will be lots and lots of pictures um, of ships and, uh, you know, different bits of the ships and the ship's bells and all of that kind of thing. Uh, there will also be lots of scribbled notes when I suddenly think of something and write it down. I have a visual memory for words in a way that doesn't work on a screen. Uh, so when I'm making notes about what I'm going to do next or changing things, you know, like your notepad here, so I mean, I can see, I, I can remember where a note is because of how it looks on the page, whereas it's on a screen, everything looks the same. Um, I have artifacts as well. You know, I have a cutlass. Wow, okay. not a cutlass? Yeah. Whoa. Because, you know, when you're writing those things... Careful when you're going around cakes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you interrupt me when I'm not expecting it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's it's that how heavy is it? So if you're a woman, I'm a, a small, short woman. Louise is a tall, statuesque woman, so she has height and breadth. But even so, real swords are very, very, very heavy. It's things like that. Because then when you're describing something, it's like, well, you're not kind of... you're. You know, it's not Errol Flynn, that's the point. Um, and I find it's what the great Neil McGregor once called the charisma of things. The idea that when you hold something from the past in your hands, you kind of feel the texture of life. And so I've got a tiny uh, Bible in French, a very early Bible in French. And it's really tiny because it was became illegal to own a Bible in French because that was seen as, you know, not appropriately Catholic. So I have all of those kind of things as well. And it's chaos. It's absolute chaos. And if I'm really stuck with a scene, I'll print it off in a different font and read it on paper. So there'll also be that all over the floor. And then the dog will have come in and there'll be footprints. Is it a very nerdy question. What's your font of choice? <laughs> <laughs> My font of choice, Simon, is Bookman Olds. OK. I find Avenir is... Oh. Oh, well, that's rather <laughs> inspirational, Avenir. I think so. The future. Um, now, we're at a slight disadvantage. I just want to ask you about the uh, the winner of the 
Women's Prize because by the time this podcast has landed, yes. everyone will know. Yes. But obviously, you're not going to be in a position to, to tell anything, uh, to tell us anything. So the short list is Laline Paul, Jacqueline. I'm going to look at you and see if you react. <laughs> well, can, I, can, I can spare you this okay. in that the judges haven't had the judging meeting yet. So right, it's so not. Ju- no, so this isn't a poker face. Is it? Okay. Been yeah, 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 yeah. Jacqueline <laughs> Crooks, Louise Kennedy, Maggie O'Farrell, Barbara Kingsolver, and Priscilla Morris. Are you as excited about the prize? I mean, there are slight changes, so you might just want to tell us just a, uh, a little bit about where the prize is for this year. Well, where we are is that in early June, we announced that we would be launching for next year, 2024, a Women's Prize for nonfiction. So that's incredibly exciting. Uh, the idea of maybe doing a little bit of what we've done for writing by women uh, in the fiction area for nonfiction and the incredible narrative nonfiction that's out there. And it is a cracking shortlist. But we do a digital shortlist festival every year where I interview all the authors wherever they are in the world. And they are so varied and such beautiful books. So Laline Pauls is about, you know, it's told from the point of view of a dolphin. And when you say that, you go, how does that work? But yet somehow it's this heartbreaking story of community and exile and what's happening to the oceans. And it's the most brilliant environmental novel I've ever read, for example. There's Louise... I, I, say, yeah. fant- I look forward to reading that book. And to those people who say, stay in your lane and only only write about, you know, what... Yeah. What, what what you know yeah. about and what you've been taught and so on. Well, I've written a book about <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, from the point of view of a dolphin. Yeah, no, so exactly. put that in your pipe I mean, it, and smoke. And, it, and people kind of look surprised, and then of course they start reading it, and almost straight away, of course, you realise that you know I'm not I'm not a seventeenth century pirate. You know, I'm not a man. No, I write men. I write you know. I mean, it, you know, it, it, I mean, a dolphin is a is a very you know. So there, there's that. There's an extraordinary novel by Louise Kennedy about the well, not about the troubles. It's a love story set against the backdrop of the troubles in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, which brought everything that I remember watching as a child on the television back to life. Uh, Barbara Kingsolver's uh, Demon Copperhead is a work of genius, and it's um, a retelling in present day. America in Kentucky in the Appalachian Mountains of David Copperfield. But it's also an absolutely excoriating indictment of the opioid crisis in America and the deliberate targeting of poor rural communities. There's a beautiful book about the siege of Sarajevo from Priscilla Morris, which again is about an artist and she is left behind when her father, uh, husband and daughter leave. And again, you remember seeing that on the news and we're seeing that with you know, the uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia. You know, it starts off and everybody thinks it will just be a couple of weeks and then still it went on. You know, it was four years of a siege. Beautiful and clever, clever novel uh, by Jacqueline Crooks, which is kind of about reggae culture and the life in America, uh, in England, in London, the Afro-Caribbean community at the moment, the stuff laws were being very targeted towards black men and other men of colour, but with brilliant music and all of, you know, suddenly remembering all of that scar and reggae that suddenly was mm. everywhere, which was um, incredible. Uh, have I done all six now? I think you have. And maybe oh, we'll Maggie O'Farrell. Of course. Oh, and Maggie yeah, yeah. O'Farrell, Marriage Portrait, which, of course, is more my territory, historical fiction, and takes the real-life story of a, a you know, a Medici and a murder, and, the, and, and also a terrible subtext, which is often if young girls didn't produce an heir pretty quickly, it was quite commonplace for those upper-class girls to be killed. It was a different version, Italian version of honour killing. So... Six amazing novels, and one of them will have won. <laughs> uh, 
Kate Moss's book is The Ghost Ship and is available now. It's out now. Um, there will be another chat with Kate uh, along next week when she tackles the, uh, the Q&A. But for the moment, Kate Moss, thank you very much. Thank you both.